We're going to finish up our series today on work as worship, and I wanted to bring in someone who would be able to capture that spirit, someone who has straddled many worlds. Of He's an entrepreneur. He's had businesses. He's started businesses. In fact, if you are a businessman in this area, once a month he runs a thing through the Buffalo Bible Institute that talks about how do you become a godly leader in a secular world. And that's a guy that we almost lost this last year, Hutch. And I'm very thrilled to have my friend Hutch come forward and uh, lead us this morning. So Hutch, blessings on you as you lead us on work as worship. Good morning, church. It is good, indeed good to be here. Uh, it's phenomenal. And wouldn't you know it, the screen goes blank just as I get up here. Of course that happens. Well, as most of you know, I have uh, been spending a lot of time in hospitals lately. And uh, I, I've, I've noticed that hospitals have a particular routine. As a matter of fact, all medical, where, where's our medical? If you're a medical type person, you can relate to, yeah, okay, you, you know the drill. Uh, you, whether you're in the hospital, sitting down, whatever, they'll first come in to you or you walk in and they'll ask you your name. <clears throat> Can't give them nicknames, you gotta give them your full name, Dale Robert Hutchcraft. Date of birth, 29 December 1950. Any allergies? Work. That's usually the response I get, too. And then somebody will chuckle and say, well, me too. And, you know. But one of the things that, you know, doesn't that say something, how we look at work? Uh, I went to uh, buy my grandson with him a, a, a T-shirt. We needed to get some clothes because he was staying overnight. And we went to Walmart and, forgive me, Matt Lubin, wherever you are, but he wanted a t-shirt that said, I'm late because I don't want to be here. <laughs> and sometimes that sums up our attitude with work. Worse yet, one of the missionaries we support, my oldest son, Matthew, has a t-shirt. His favorite t-shirt reads this. My worst day of fishing beats my best day at work. Okay? Now, How should we look at work? Now the next slide, hopefully if I did this right, covers what we've learned. They're a little small, but over the last, actually it started, what, about four weeks ago, three weeks ago, about two weeks ago, but we had a couple people that kind of wove some things in even before that. So here's some things that I've compiled that we've learned up to date. First of all, God created us to be his representatives on earth and to bear his image. And part of that image is to be encourage and continue his creative work. And Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians 2.10 emphasize that that's an act of worship. But of course, we as human beings, we gum that all up, and somehow we have managed to make work. I mean, how many of you get up in the morning and go, wow, I get to go to work? You know, most of us get up and go, I owe, I owe 
so off to work I go. Right? In the Hebrew Scriptures, one of the things we learned was the word that's used for work, avodah, could be translated as meaning both worship and labor. So in biblical terms, there's kind of a connection. We've learned that. Now, we didn't really touch on it, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, Solomon is examining life and using wisdom to reason for, toward the purpose of life, and this is what he says. I know nothing is better for them than to rejoice and do good in their lives, and also that every person should eat, drink, and enjoy the good of all their labors. This is a gift of God. And in this construction here, the grammar, I hate to bore you with grammar, is such that not only is the fruits of your labor a gift of God, are you ready for this? The work is a gift of God. Well, at least you're not throwing anything at me. That's, that's a good sign. Your work is a gift of God. So when we come to the same realization that King Solomon comes to about life and work, the meaningfulness of work, we begin to look at it through different eyes. And we begin to embrace work and to love it. And we yearn for it. And we desire to worship God through our service of our work. Now, some of you are probably saying, okay, this guy has lost it. But that's what the scripture has said. Now, if we'll go on to the next slide, what we want to talk about this morning is how do you go about worshiping God through your work? We want to nail that down. But before we look at the scriptures, I just want to bow for a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together, your love for us, this opportunity to focus on some principles that help us see how to best worship you, to bring you glory in our work. You have told us that we should do all things for your glory. And that includes work. So we ask through this time that we might sense your Spirit's presence. And that we might recognize the reality of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we move through the passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, uh, just for Tim's sake back there, or, or, uh, when I say first insight, second insight, etc., that's your cue, okay? I didn't tell you that. First insight, bang, that I'd like to share with you this morning comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. We're going to be going through, through 1 through 9. And the book says simply this, Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of things? Now, the key word there is an Aramaic word for interpretation. And the idea of that little word is simply this. It's the person that knows the why behind things. They're able to see the big picture. The essence of we worship God by our work when we have a grip on reality and we live 
our lives in that reality. It's the understanding uh, that we see life through God's worldview. And we live our life through that worldview. It's an act of faith. We do it by grace through faith. And so you might say Solomon is telling us that what those of us who worship through our work are people who have clear minds and a vision of what the big picture is. We understand the whys. We can't understand all the whys. In fact, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes camps on. So if we truly understand who we are in Christ, who we have been created to be, then we can by grace through faith live in the presence of God and that's when our work becomes worship. Insight number two. By the way, because we're kind of on a short time, I'm just going to go through the insights and then we'll wrap it up with some illustration. Second insight. He says, a man's wisdom... Oh, I didn't think I was that bad. Now watch me knock that on the computer. In a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face change. Paraphrase, a person's wisdom lights up their face when they understand who they are in Christ and they understand the circumstances around them. They live in biblical joy. Now I know that all of life is ha 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 ha. I understand that all of life is not just oh wow. Sometimes life's a little hard. Even with the people surround us, there's an old little thing that goes to live above with saints. We know, well, that will be such glory. To live below, well, that's another story. Right? What this particular passage is emphasizing is our work becomes worship when it's done with biblical joy. When we handle life trusting the living God and his love for us, we can approach life in his presence with a calm confidence. Insight number three. We worship God by our work when we yield ourselves ultimately to him in our work. By serving in the context he has placed us. Operating in that context that he has placed us with decorum and contentment and confidence, not just, not in us, but in who he is. Because when we live by faith, we bring him glory. So if you take a look, we're going to break this up in two quick chunks. In verses 2 through 4, we read these words. I say, that's the Solomon Keep the king's commands because God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Employers and kings are like that, right? Okay. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Now we 
can do some of that, but in essence, the final authority is our employer and our king. Let me break that down for you. What Solomon is saying is simply this. The wise person behaves appropriately in the presence of the king or his employer or his employees and those around him. He keeps his word, his oath of allegiance that he has made. That You know, when we make an allegiance, it's not only allegiance to another individual, but we, we, we make an oath to, to the person, to, to God as well. So it's to the person and to God. Don't join a revolt against the king. Furthermore, he, a wise person does not dispute the king's authority. That's the essence of what he's saying. And that brings us to verses 5 through 7. Whoever keeps the king's command will know no evil thing. Now again, I, I've got about two and a half hours material. And I understand this has a shock color on it. And Pastor Greg told, told uh, the sound people that you just press the button. And that's going to set up the defibrillator. It will be a nasty thing. So I, I, please understand, we're just giving you the highlights, all right? But basically, if you respond to the king or respond to an employer, you're not going to, rightly, you're not going to get in trouble. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. For who, who can tell him how it will be? Briefly, unpacking these verses, Solomon is saying the following. It's a wise person that knows the right time to act. Because there is a right time for every action. We see that in verse 6. And no one can fully predict that right time will be. Because no one other than God knows the future. Let me give you a couple quick illustrations of two individuals that fit that mold. Matter of fact, if you want illustrations of what Solomon is talking about, Go read Daniel, go read Nehemiah. Daniel is a prisoner of war, stuck in a Gentile kingdom. They're wanting him to eat unclean food. That doesn't mean it's not war, it's just ceremonially. Not. They want him to eat pork. He's a nice Jewish boy, he's not supposed to eat pork. And we could elaborate on it and it'd be funny, but we won't. But he's exercised gentleness and wisdom and he went to the chief Enoch and said, hey, um, can, we t can we try an experiment? You feed us this food and, and see how we do. And it says that their countenances became brighter than those of everyone else. The plan worked, and Daniel and his friends not only kept themselves ceremonially clean, but they were promoted to the highest positions in the king's court. Nehemiah, he was burdened to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. You remember Nebuchadnezzar came in, destroyed Jerusalem, had to it took the walls down. Now, some over 70 some odd years later, the Persians were in power 
and he was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And he heard about the walls, and he'd weep, and he'd pray, and then he'd go into the service of the, of the king. Now, by the way, when you're the king's cupbearer, you just don't get a vacation at the drop of the hat. We don't have a lot of cupbearers today. A cupbearer was the most trusted individual in the empire because the king trusted him not to poison him and trusted him to taste his food. A job that I think I could do very well. And so when, when Nehemiah didn't get it totally together and he goes out and the king realizes that he's been crying because he's been praying and the king looks at him and says, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? And Nehemiah goes, may the king live forever. <laughs> you know, I'm not sick. But I am, I am totally broken up that the walls of my hometown Jerusalem lay in ruin. King says, what do you need? You see, Nehemiah waited and watched and prayed, knowing that God would one day open a way for him. And when that opportune hour came, Nehemiah was ready, and the king granted his request. But catch this, Nehemiah knew how to discern the time and the procedure. We worship God in our work, but we ultimately yield ourselves to God in our workplace. And we conduct ourselves in a way that brings glory to God. Let me illustrate. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. I got four or five devotionals on the Lord of the Rings. Sarah Arthur has one, and she, she wrote these words. It, it comes from the return of the king. Uh, it's the last installment, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. And it involves Aragorn and Eowyn. Eowyn is the do, uh, niece of Theodon, and she's a princess. And Aragorn happens to lift up her saddle, a stirrup, and he sees there a sword. And he looks at her and says, what, what do you fear, my lady? Man, can I relate to her response. Maybe you can too. She goes, a cage to stay behind bars until use and old age accept them and all chances of doing great deeds are gone beyond recall or desire. Here's what Arthur writes, and I think she captures Solomon, is what Solomon is trying to say here. John Calvin in the 16th century Protestant leader once wrote that most people fear and abhor three things. You might want to jot these down even though they're not on the top here. Three things that we have fear. We people fear poverty, obscurity, and humility. Why those three? What do they have in common? They all involve sacrifice. 
It, they all involve giving up something. In poverty, we give up the need of our stuff. In obscurity, giving up the need to make a name for ourselves. And in humility, giving up the need to pursue our own agendas first. But perhaps more importantly, all three involve a loss of freedom. Freedom to have what we want when we want it. Freedom to control whom we please. Freedom to do what we please. In obscurity and in poverty and in humility, we are forced to surrender to someone else. We're like wild animals hunted and trapped in a zoo behind those bars. Forced to surrender to someone else's will. Or so it seems to those who are on the outside looking in. But what Solomon is saying and what Arthur is stating and what's dry, the point that we need to drive home is this. For those who have chosen obedience, joyful obedience, the door to freedom has been flung wide open. Then you can truly be free when your work and your whole life is lived out in submission to the will of God. It's a concept that few of us understand. I'm still working on it. In the storyline of the Lord of the Rings, Eowyn doesn't understand it at first either. You see, her definition of greatness is nothing less than being the queen of Middle-earth. She's willing to let others have the primary role. She doesn't mind being best supporting actress on her terms. She kills one of the ring rats, one of the most terrible creatures of the enemy. A great deed, if there ever was one. But she's still restless because she can't go out and battle anymore. She's pacing the cage of her own soul. And may I suggest that a lot of times in our discontent, in the places that God has put us, we're pacing the cage of our own soul. When first confronted with the master plan of what Eowyn's future holds, she refuses to accept it, thinking that an alternative course, one of her own choosing, will be the key to freedom. And that is often true of you and me, and that is what Solomon is noting here in the passage. Arthur writes this, we are all born to greatness. Our teachers tell us that, our parents, our coaches, and that is true to some degree. Because we're all made for a reason. We all have unique gifts and talents and skills that God wants, us, wants to use to bring him glory. And in time, we align ourselves with God's master plan. Our sense of identity and purpose become clearer. The problem is we want greatness on our terms. We're not willing to allow God to prescribe our path. Or use it in ways that he sees fit. If God doesn't place us where we think we should be with the right kinds of people, 
doing the right kinds of things, then we begin to get restless and we pace the cage of our souls. And that's what Solomon is talking about. And in that case, our work is no longer worship because our work is about us and not about the glory of God. More often than not, we as God's people are called to do things that seem pretty obscure. We're asked to care for aging grandparents or parents. We are put sometimes in what appears to be, at least from our perspectives and others, dead-end jobs. Some of us are going down to the Dominican to suffer for Jesus in 84-degree weather to pound hammers. Some of us have to change diapers at home or in the nursery down the hall. I've always been tempted to put a sign up there that, you know, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Each of us may be involved in washing load after load of load so we can't stand to see another sock. Each of us may feel like there's small matters among great deeds that we, that, that why are these things important to God? But catch this, beloved. From God's perspective, even the minor details of our work are important details in the ongoing plot of history. This means that our work, even the what we perceive to be the unimportant details is being used by a sovereign, creating, saving God to reveal His glory in His unfolding story. And when we come to the story of the return of the king and the character of Eowyn, finally she relinquishes her deed to have greatness on her own terms and she truly becomes free. Free to serve the people in her care and free to pursue her true calling as a healer rather than a warrior queen. Our work becomes our worship when we work from the perspective, when we understand that first of all, our work is about God, not about us. And it's for his glory, which leads us to insight number four. No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. It's just simply saying, hey, look, nobody knows how long they're going to live. Nobody knows when they're going to die. And this is essentially a Hebrewic thing of, to, to address humility. So we worship God by our work when we live our lives out humbly trusting in God's love for us rather than trying to live it on our own terms. It's an understanding that we're not perfect. It's an understanding that we do make mistakes. It's an understanding that unfortunately we do as even as people of God sin. But the great joy is we live in the presence of God in which all of our sin has been forgiven 
as the song so aptly put it, that we sang this morning, by the red blood of Jesus Christ, that we might be white. Now the time says I need to move on, so let's move on to insight number five. This, there is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Wow. Succinctly, what we're dealing with here is Solomon is saying, don't take advantage of people. And I'd like to say we worship God by our work when we don't take advantage of people. Especially, he is saying that people hurt other people. We worship God by our work. When we serve him by serving others, we are worshiping God. We do that through discipleship. We do that through evangelism as well. Matter of fact, somehow, you know, it, Billy Graham passed away this week. And I was in a conversation and somebody said, who's going to replace Billy Graham? It's not about who's going to place, replace Billy Graham. We need to be saying, what has God called us to do in sharing the gospel, discipling those around us? We had an individual a couple weeks ago that talked about discipling our families, but discipling those at our work. Now, I realize I'm teaching an MBA course in human resource management. I realize that you can't go put a Bible on your desk at work and you can't say, come over here, we need to talk to you about Jesus. I, I, I understand that. But we're supposed to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And we're supposed to obey those things and yet there's plenty of opportunity to work in that context. I want to close with this short, hopefully short illustration. Boris Kornfield was a Russian Jew. And for some reason, nobody really knows why. Maybe it was because he referred to Joseph Stalin, the murderer of 60 million of his own people, as a dictator or a psychopath. But for some reason, Boris Kornfield ended up in a Russian gulag where he lived out the rest of his life. He was a medical doctor, and his job was to make sure the people in the gulag stayed alive and that when they finally died, they could write the right words. Instead of saying they died because they were beaten, they died because of starvation, that he could write in there that they died of a heart attack, they died of cancer, they died of whatever. Slowly, Cornfield began to see through all this politics and philosophy and he finally decided there got, that there's just got to be another way. And through the influence of a fellow inmate, Cornfield came to a personal relationship in Jesus Christ. He trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone for eternal life and for forgiveness of sins. And the transformation was slow, but it was steady. On one occasion, he was doing surgery on a guard that had beaten some of the uh, folks in the gulag and had beaten him. And he's sitting there and he's doing surgery and he goes, you know, I don't have to tie this knot on this vein all that tight. And he'll just bleed to death and nobody will know. 
but he didn't because Christ lived in his life and he found himself unable to kill and he even mumbled to himself on many occasions and even this one forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us strange words coming from the lips of a Jew in a Russian prison camp now I'm sure that Cornfield didn't realize the model he was setting I'm sure he didn't even contemplate that someday he'd be used, being used as illustrations in all sorts of church settings. That wasn't his objective anyway. Neither would he realize the impact that he would have on the world, not only around him, but throughout the whole world. He was working on an inmate who had cancer of the intestines. The man didn't look like he was going to live. Boris Cornfield was so concerned about the man's faith, he leaned over and he spoke quietly to him as the patient drifted in and out of anesthesia. And he, he told the man about Christ and explained God's love, which was demonstrated to the, through the Savior's death and resurrection. And when the, when the man would come to, Cornfield said, he, I'll tell him more then. And at one point, the patient woke up, and in his groggy state, he heard noises down the hall, and the noises that he heard was his doctor, Boris Cornfield, being brutally beaten to death. When the patient finally did regain consciousness, he realized all that it meant to Dr. Cornfield to give his life for the cause of Christ. And the patient himself, Donnelly personally gave his life to Christ and received Christ as well, but he lived. He lived a long time to 2008. He wrote a book that revealed what life was like in a Russian gulag. In 1970, he won a Pulitzer Prize for literature. Eventually, he was stripped of his Russian citizenship. Didn't break him up much at all. His writings and speaking were influential in bringing about the independence of Poland. His writings and speaking were influential in bringing down the communist governments of Eastern Europe and even Russia. And he didn't even let materialistic Western society in America off the hook either. He boldly, boldly proclaimed the problems with our materialistic society in the West and influenced hundreds of young men and women going into the ministry. Dr. Cornfield's patient is a man most of us don't even know existed. Matter of fact, when I say his name, some of you will go, who? The issue of obscurity. But his writing and speaking at the end of the 20th century significantly has shaped the world that you live in in the beginning of the 21st century. And that man's name that Dr. Boris Cornfield whispered in his ear and did surgery on was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion is up there on the wall. Those who see their work as worship are people who model in the workplace authenticity, genuine humility, letting God love them as they trust him in their workplace. That involves a, the political correct word would be yieldedness to God, or better yet, submission to God, and a genuine love for others. And in so doing, in so doing, you and I, even when they, they, they are the things that we go, this is insignificant in the scope of the world politics and the things that are being broadcast on the news. God says it's not insignificant in my economy because you and I are shaping the future of the world even when we may not be aware of it. So the conclusion of the matter is simply this. The application, before Braxton comes up and pray, the application is simply this. Tomorrow morning, Monday, when you get up, Go to worship at your job. Do all things heartily as unto him.